a cacophony of sound. Maybe better, a cacophony of noise. I don't know about you, but that describes life for me in a technological age. That just everywhere I turn, somewhere, someone is after me to do something. They're after me to buy something, to change some habit, to be a part of something. It's everywhere we turn, is it not? If we're watching a TV set, if we're at a sporting event, if we're walking through the mall, if we're listening to our radio, if we're reading a magazine, yes, there are still things as magazines. Some of you may not realize that, but they come like with paper and, and, the, and you can hold them in your hand. Every page has things on there where someone's trying to get you to alter your behavior. We call it advertising. People make a living at it. And yet at every turn, they're expecting what they do to impact you. And that really pictures a lot of parts of our life, does it not? Everywhere we turn, there are influences in our life trying to impact us. It comes from our government. It comes from the airwaves. It comes from our friends. It, it comes from even the automobiles that we buy and, and the, the, the look that we're trying to gather uh, when we buy that automobile. There are some people that buy certain models of automobiles because of what it stands for, what they're trying to communicate to other people. And in the spiritual realm, it's even worse, and it's even more deadly. Because in the spiritual realm, Satan and his agents are constantly trying to alter what we think, alter what we do, get us to think about life in a way different from what the Bible says to think about life. In essence, everyone sends messengers into our life, don't they? And we can put all the gates in the world up, but if we're going to live anywhere other than in the mountains where we come down like once every three months for supplies and then talk to no one because we just look mean and grumbly so nobody talks to us, someone is going to influence us. The question is, will you let them? The question is, will I let them? What do we have to say to the messengers of darkness that try to spiritually impact us to forget what our God has said? What do we have to say to the messengers of darkness who do everything in their power to influence us with earthly thinking and earthly wisdom? Wisdom that comes from Satan and his agents instead of from above, from God and his word. That's the message that Isaiah God, through Isaiah, is bringing to the Philistines on behalf of the Israelites, of the Judeans, in our text today. What will you say to the messengers that come to you? What will be your message to the nation? Now, there's much in our text this morning. It's only five verses, and you think, wow, maybe we'll have a short sermon. Have you studied this text? Have you looked at this text and dissected it and tried to figure out snakes and adders and flying serpents and, and all of that? Well, let me tell you, it's a glorious text. And its ultimate message is God wins. God has a plan in the world. He will carry it out. And the question is, are you going to submit to that plan or not? Are you going to be part of what God is doing because he rules the universe or are you thinking you are going to rule your own life, going to rule your own life into destruction? At best, for a believer to try to hold on to ru ruling their own life at least into loss of blessing, if not destruction because we never knew him. 
You see, part of becoming a Christian at the very root, at the very root of becoming a Christian is saying, I believe in Jesus and everything that he's done and I will do everything he commands of me because he rules the world and I repent of all my efforts to rule my world. And so when we do that, we're coming before the Lord and saying, I am willing to follow you. And the cacophony of noise, I am going to not listen to. So what will we do today with the message? How will the message today to the Philistines on behalf of God's people, from God through Isaiah, travel through the centuries to affect us in the Bible Church of Cabot today in 2022? And I submit to you that it affects us in the same way that it did God's people in Isaiah's day. It's the challenge and the reminder that God is sovereign over the nation, so why would we turn to them? God is sovereign over all the cacophony of noise, so why would we turn to any of those when we have the words of our God? Isaiah chapter 14. Let's stand together as I read verses 28 to 32, which is the end of this, the second official oracle. Remember, we started with Babylon. Spent a couple of weeks with a long oracle to Babylon, and we saw that Babylon was being spoken to both as ancient Babylon and as all Babylons, because the scriptures use the idea of Babylon to speak often of the, the systems and communities and nations and peoples that are against God. And then also with that was the reminder to the local Judean people that even though Babylon will take them in captivity long in the future, 130 or 40 years yet in the future, that will happen then, but, but God is still working now and the Assyrians are at bay. The Assyrians are at your door. The Assyrians will take the northern kingdom into captivity in 722 and at the time that this oracle is written, that's already happened when verse 28 comes around. And so reminding the people that Assyria is the earthly uh, foe, but Assyria is my rod, God says, the same as Babylon is my rod to do what I say. So verse 28 of chapter 14, the second oracle, in the year that King Ahaz died came this oracle. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken. For from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. And the firstborn of the poor will graze, and the needy lie down in safety. But I will kill your root with famine, and your remnant it will slay. Wail, O gate, cry out, O city, melt in fear, O Philistia, all of you. For smoke comes out of the north, and there is no straggler in his ranks. What will one answer the messengers of the nation? Yahweh has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. The glass, grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. Well, I want you to see right at the beginning of this oracle that we're in the year that King Ahaz died. Now, we only have that phrase, in the year that a king dies, one other time, and we've already covered it, right, in chapter 6. In the year Uzziah died, I saw the Lord 
seated on his throne, high and exalted, the train of his robe filling the temple. It's the only two times that that phrase is used. There's one other time that we're going to see an event marked by the death of a person, but this phraseology is only used in chapter 6 and now here in chapter 14, verse 28. It seems that this terminology marks off something that's important for Isaiah. It seems that this is something he wants to draw to our attention because we have this exact year. Now, when was the year that King Ahaz died? Well, I think it's most likely 715. 715. Now, there is some discrepancy in 2 Kings 18 uh, about when this date is, but the clearest date is when we see uh, a, an event that's going to happen that we will cover in Isaiah in, in just a few chapters when Sennacherib comes up against King Hezekiah. And that event has a clear dating of 701. And in 2 Kings 18, we find the phrase, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign. So in the 14th year, being 701 means he took over in 715. So we are after the fall of the northern kingdom now. Before, we could have been already for many chapters. Um, but in, in the flow of things, this oracle is being marked by the death of a Judean king. Now, partially we rejoice at the death of, Je of this Judean king, don't we? Because this king's wicked. This king is is a non-believing king. He's a pagan king. Everything that he does in his life is, is for his own good. He bows his people to foreign gods. and There's nothing godly about him. Hezekiah will come on the, reign, on the scene at this time, and he is a better king. He, he is going to stand against the Assyrians instead of bow to them. He's not perfect, but he is a better king. And we'll see that he also is a stronger king against specifically one country, the Philistines. So when we see in the year that King Ahaz died came this oracle, and I do think that is attached to 28 through 32. It doesn't go to the oracle that we've just seen. Some of your Bibles may have the heading in a different spot, as if that oracle ends the oracle to Assyria. But I, I'm pretty sure it's here, because that's the way oracles are named in the Bible. The oracle of so-and-so, and then the oracle follows. So there's a lot of history for us to understand today, if we're to understand the meaning of this text. Both, first of all, to the Philistines, but second of all, to the southern kingdom. Remember, all of these oracles are given, and they're given within the ear of the southern kingdom. They, they may, or may not have been sent out to these other nations. They're given for the purpose of God's people in the southern kingdom. And so in this time, we're seeing that we're advancing now to, to the neighbors that are around God's people the neighbors that are around. And we are going to continue into different um, countries, oracles against them. Next week, we'll look at uh, an oracle concerning Moab. And that goes on for two chapters. And then we have Damascus. And that goes on for a little ways. And then we have Cush. And then we have Egypt. So, so we have other oracles coming up that are to other nations. And the primary thing we need to remember through all of these, it's not the topic of every sermon, but it's the primary purpose of every oracle you, God's people, don't go to the nations because God is in charge of them as well. So don't go to them for protection. Go to Yahweh. If we can remember that, then we have the purpose of God speaking to his people, even as he speaks about other nations. So in these verses, 28 through 32, 
we witness three reorienting realities in the oracle concerning Philistia given in the year King Ahaz died. Three reorienting realities, and I chose those words specifically, reorienting realities in the oracle concerning Philistia given in the year that King Ahaz died, which is 715. So the first thing, the first reality that we see is the command, do not rejoice, O Philistia. Look, look what it says right there in chapter 14, verse 29. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken. So there's some rod that's broken, and Philistia is rejoicing, and God says through Isaiah in the ears of his people, don't rejoice over that. Don't rejoice over the rod who has struck you being broken. But I want you to notice this little phrase, all of you, and we also have this again in verse 31, melt in fear, O Philistia, all of you. It's very wonderful words for who Philistia is. Philistia is made up of a bunch of cities that are not really unified at all the time. Sometimes they're unified and sometimes they're not. But there are five cities that are mentioned. They're mentioned in Scripture specifically, and we, we know this from history. These five cities, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath. And they're all on the, on the Mediterranean Sea to the west of Judah. And they, they're that thin little strip that's on, on the sea. Uh, it, it, uh, the Gaza Strip sits in there right now. It's not the whole thing that was Palestine at the time. Gaza Strip is a little smaller. But if you know that, ma that map where that's battled over all the time, that's the area that we're talking about, populated historically by seagoing people because there were all the ports that were all up and down uh, the seacoast there. And they were a, a, a pain in the side of Israel. But Israel was also a pain in their side throughout history. So when we come to this, we have the setting, the year that King Ahaz died, and then we have the first command, rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, this, this mishmash of cities that sometimes are unified and sometimes are not scattered up and down the coast, that the rod that struck you is, has broken. Now, what is the rod that has struck them? Because Ahaz, everything's tied around the death of Ahaz, so we're thinking about the southern kingdom and their leadership, but Ahaz didn't have a lot of victory over the Philistines. Ahaz wasn't the one who overcame them. So if we understand a little bit about the history of God's people in the Philistines, I think it becomes clear who the rod is. And this, we could spend about three hours going through all these stories, okay? I'm just going to do it in a couple of minutes to remind us what we know of the Philistines, their relationship to God's people, Israel, and then David and his relationship to the Philistines. So in Joshua, the lands of the five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, they were all part of the land that the people had not yet possessed when Joshua enters into the land. In Judges, those five lords of the Philistines were part of the nations that Yahweh left in the land. And to quote the Bible, he left them there to test Israel. So they have a purpose. Are we starting to see already that whatever the Philistines do, God has a purpose with them. God is in charge of them. What happens with them, how he uses them. The third judge in the, in the book of Judges, 
um, the, the third judge, Shamgar, is mentioned just with one line in Scripture. If you remember the judges, and, and we have some judges that have a lot of Scripture tell, talking about, Shamgar has one line, and that one line says this, after him, that is Ehud, the judge that was before him, the second judge, after Ehud was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. So there's a conflict already. We, and we have, I skipped over the Genesis passages that talk about Philistia, even before they were called Philistia. They're mentioned many times in Genesis as well. They populate Scripture for us a lot. God gave Israel into the hands of the Philistines twice in the book of Judges because Israel worshiped gods of other nations. And the list is long, but the Philistines are right in the middle of it. They, the, God, the, the, God's people worshiped the gods of the Philistine, and God gave them into the hands of the Philistines for this false worship. The second time God caused that to happen, the Philistines to rule over his people, it was for 40 years. And during this time, a very famous person, Samson, uh, rises up during that 40 years when they were under the leadership of the Philistines. He was the 12th judge of Israel. He fell in lust with a Philistine woman and demanded to have her as his wife, and his parents tried to deter him, but the scripture tells us very, clear, very clearly that they did not know, the parents that is, did not know that it, this, this uh, Samson going after this, this Philistine lady of the evening, they did not know that it was from Yahweh, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. So here's Samson who comes in. We're not going to go into his whole story, but sin and all, God uses Samson to overcome the Philistines, not once, but twice, and he did it because he wants a hand up on the Philistine, and he uses Samson to do so. In 1 Samuel, you remember this story. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were, were evil men. And God said that they would die on the same day because they were evil men. And Eli didn't, didn't sit on his sons. Eli didn't take care of the evil that his son was doing, and sons were doing. And so they went into battle with none less than the Philistines, and Hophni and Phinehas die on the same day. Along with Eli, when he's told about the death of his sons, he falls over backwards and dies. And along with Phinehas's wife, who, who doesn't die but gives birth prematurely, and that's where the famous phrase comes from, Ichabod. Ichabod, because the glory of the Lord has left us because the Philistines took the ark. Well, when they take the ark, what do they do? They put it in with their God, Dagon, the fish God. They put it in with their God, and the next morning they get up, and Dagon's laying face down in front of the ark, prostrate before, prostrate before the ark. And so they stand this idol back up, and the next morning they come and he's laying down again. But this time his arms are chopped off and his heads are chopped off, head is chopped off, and it, those are sitting in the threshold. So by this time, the, the Philistines say, we got to get rid of this. This is not good for us. And so they send the ark back. God is in charge of what happens with the Philistines. He is the one who oversees them. He is the one who uses them as he sees fit. Samuel begins to judge Israel and calls them back to Yahweh. This, this is in 1 Samuel. And the scripture tells us, quote, And the hand of Yahweh was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. 1 Samuel 7, 13. God tells Samuel to appoint Saul as king because, quote, in 1 Samuel 9, 16, Saul would save my people from the hands of the Philistines. 
And then ironically, it was the Philistines who vicariously were the reason Saul's kingship was removed. When they gathered to battle at Gilgal, God's people were afraid and they were, they were fleeing from Saul and, and Samuel was late. You remember this story? Samuel was late and so Saul went in and offered the burnt offering sacrifice. That's a no-no for a king, right? It's a no-no for a king. And because he did that, God said, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you. And so it was all to do with the Philistines that was part of the reason that Saul lost his kingship. And when he loses his kingship, along comes David. And David is the, he's the nemesis of the Philistines. You remember in 1 Samuel 17, he defeats Goliath at Gath. And what is Goliath? A Philistine, right? So the whole nation is afraid of this giant. And David comes out from the field and he's aghast. He's aghast that this Philistine, Philistine of all people, would shout curses against God's people. And so to make a long story short, he gathers, gathers up five stones, only needs one of them and slings it. The giant falls and he cuts off his head. And that's the beginning of God saying, David rules the Philistines as well. Throughout the rest of, of Samuel, David has to avoid Saul's murderous advances. And in doing so, he flees twice into the land of the Philistines, living among them for months as a man of honor. But then the Philistines defeat Israel, kill King Saul and his sons, including Jonathan, David's great friend, and this begins to change everything. And you remember, when David wanted Saul's daughter, he went, uh, Saul says, oh, I'm going to take care of David. Saul didn't really like David, you remember? And so he said, I'm going to take care of David. He said, you can have my daughter if you do what? Bring me 100 Philistine foreskins. So he thinks by the time he gets those, he'll be dead. So what does David do? He brings back 200. And so when he comes back from the battle, he comes back from the battle with the Philistines, all the women are singing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And things begin to continue to get worse for the Philistines. And also Samuel gets even more jealous. David is anointed king twice, or anointed king and twice defeats the Philistines and brings back the ark and then defeats them at least two more times in chapters 21 and 23 in 2 Samuel. Well, of all the things we could add to this, this brings us up to today. Not our today, but Isaiah's today. Remember, we are always looking to see what the scriptures, what the original authors meant for the original hearers to, to understand and to do before we apply it to ourselves. So this brings it up to today. So turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 28. 2 Chronicles chapter 28. We're going to begin in verse 18. We've already read in several different sermons dealing with this historical event of Ahaz going to Assyria because Syria and, and the northern kingdom want the southern kingdom to join them against Assyria. This is the setting in the scriptures where we're learning about that. And Ahaz doesn't join with them in their alliance. He goes directly to the king of Assyria. We're going to begin looking in verse 18. Sixteen, not eighteen. And at that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. 
For the Edomites had again invaded and defeated Judah and carried away many captives. And the Philistines had made raids on the cities in, now this is, Ace, this is, this is our king who, is, who has just died, right? Ahaz. The Philistines had made raids on the city of Shephelah and of the Negev of Judah and had taken Beth Shemesh, Aijalon, Genderoth, Sako with its villages, Timnah with its villages, and Gimzo with its villages, and they settled there. So this king doesn't have a strong arm over the Philistines like David did. For Yahweh humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, and he had made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to Yahweh. So Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of Yahweh and the house of the king of the princes and gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to Yahweh, this same king Ahaz, for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will, serp, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and all of Israel. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God. And he shut up the doors of the house of, the, of Yahweh. And he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. In every city of Judah, he made high places to make offerings to other gods, provoking the anger of Yahweh, the God of his fathers. Now the rest of his acts and all his ways, from first to last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Ahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem, for they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. And Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. So we have this transition in the year that King Ahaz died. And Ahaz does not sound like the rod who oppressed the Philistines. It is David who is the rod who oppressed the Philistines. So when you're back in Isaiah 14, rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken. What we have here is David with, his, with the beginning of his time, 300 years from David on of this oppression of the Philistines, Solomon ruled over the, the, the Philistia without any problems because of the work of his father David. And then when we get to Ahaz, the Philistines are invading Israel and Judah when we get to Ahaz. So when we talk about the rod, we're talking about David and his line. And now we've come to the rod that David began and Ahaz is the weak link. He's the weak link in the kings of Judah. Ahaz is the worst that we can possibly get in the kings of Judah. And so when we have the rod that struck you is broken, they're rejoicing because Ahaz is such a weak king and now he's dead. And the command of them is do not rejoice over this because Ahaz is not the end of this. Ahaz is not even the main point of this. So do not rejoice, O Philistia, for though your adversary is broken, its lineage is great. Look at verse 29 again. And this is the confusing part. For, so don't rejoice that the rod that struck you is broken. Here's the reason you should not rejoice. For from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. Okay, next point. 
Isn't that what you were tempted to do when you got there? The first thing that I did was say, this is about the Messiah. And then I reread it and thought, oh, this can't be about the Messiah. You just want happy news here. You just want, it's this judgment and hope, and you want hope. Because we had hope in chapter 2, and we had hope in chapter 4 with the the glorious Jerusalem. We have hope in chapter 7 and 9 and 11 with the Messiah. So you just want it to be here, because that would be the easy thing. And so I dug in and read all these different opinions about it, and all of them made no sense to me. Have you ever done that? I read... 12 commentaries, 12 commentators' viewpoints on this. And every one that was different than where I started made no sense. So for me, it comes down to contextually, what, is the, what are these verses saying in context? It comes down to the biblical theology that we have by the terms that are used and the way Isaiah has been painting biblical theology. And it comes down to the promises that are made that, that lead to the fact that some of the Philistines come to Christ. And I'll show you that in a few minutes. And so here's what we have. We have the rod, which is David, and it is Ahaz who died, so it's David's line. That's our context. And so some people would say this is all speaking about Assyrian kings. It's Tiglath-Pileser who is ruling over Ahaz, and then it's, it's Sennacherib who we'll learn about in a, in a few chapters who is ruling and, and pestering Hezekiah in the southern kingdom. And then um, the, the king that comes after them who slips my mind right now. Uh, anybody know what it is? Er, Shad, Er, you know what I'm talking about? Shalmaneser comes next, and then there's another one that's yet, yet is he, comes even more. Then they get more powerful. Every single time they get more powerful. But if this is Assyrian kings, what does that have to do with the remnant of Judah that's in the next verse? If this is Assyrian kings, what does this have to do with the promise of Philistia how do the Assyrian kings get all the credit in God's, in God's economy here when God is constantly showing that he is Lord of the Philistines? So it's going to be the Assyrians who are the earthly power, but as Isaiah often does, he goes well beyond the earthly power. So when we see for the serpent's root, the serpent is the rod. It's a, it's a natural movement. The rod is now called the serpent to bring the next metaphor. And you say, well, you just can't make up those rules, Pastor Rob. Well, I'm not making them up. It's biblical theology for us to understand a rod and serpent, right? You remember Moses? When Moses was going to go up against Pharaoh and he was complaining, well, well I can't speak right. They're not going to listen to me. And God says, take your rod and your staff, your rod, and throw it on the ground. And he does, and what happens? It turns into a serpent. And he said, now put your hand out. The serpent then turns back to a rod in his hand. Three chapters later in the book of Numbers, he is before Pharaoh, and God says, do this. And so he throws his rod down. It becomes a serpent. And Pharaoh says, yeah, we can do that. So he turns to his magicians, and they do the same thing. They throw their rods down, and they become serpents. Well, what happens? The serpents of Moses eat up the serpents, the rods of the magicians from Pharaoh to show the superiority of God over Pharaoh, God over the nations. So we already have this precedent that there's this idea of a rod and snakes and serpents being put together in biblical theology. And so we see that clearly in Exodus chapter 4. I think I said Numbers. Exodus chapter 4 and Exodus chapter 7. But in Numbers 21 verses 4 through 9, we read this. 
from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. Then Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against Yahweh and against you. Pray to Yahweh that he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and Yahweh said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So the bronze serpent, the fiery serpent, is the one that provides salvation on behalf of Yahweh for his people. And they're being devoured by fiery servants because of their sinfulness. But if they repent and look toward God, they are forgiven. And it doesn't stop there, does it? Because Jesus in John chapter 3 says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So this idea of fiery serpents and rods and snakes have a, a trajectory for us in Scripture. In fact, if you would read the Talmud, the, the Jewish rabbi's commentary on this, they believed that the fiery serpent was the Messiah. They just didn't believe the Messiah was Jesus. And so they're, they're, they even believed that this fiery serpent in this passage was the Messiah. So look back at your text. For from the serpent's root will come forth an adder. So the serpent being the line of David, end, begun by David, ended by Ahaz, as far as their prominence and dominance over the Philistine, from the serpent's root will come forth an adder. So who is the adder? Who comes forth from the root of Ahaz? Hezekiah comes from the root of Ahaz. And when Hezekiah comes, Hezekiah has total victory over the Philistines. He has complete and total victory over the Philistines. The Bible says... Hezekiah, who rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him, which we'll learn about in coming chapters in Isaiah, and struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. So all of, all of the Philistines are under the rule when Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, comes to power. So he reasserts the Davidic dominance over the Philistines historically. So from the serpent, from his root, from Ahaz, comes forth an adder. Now, the, the progression is stronger, more vicious, more powerful snakes, right? That's the metaphor that's before us. The adder is Hezekiah, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. So some would stop here. They'd track with me here. And then stop, and the flying fiery serpent then has to be one of the kings of Assyria who are powerful kings. Assyria is a dominant force until the Babylonians, the Medes, and then the Babylonians together with them overtake them. But I cannot switch here in my mind. If this is about the death of a Davidic king, if this is about the, the perceived end of the Davidic king's 
uh, authority and dominance over the Philistines. And if the Davidic king is always a good king, like David, is doing the work of God, and God is always using the Philistines to do what he wants to do, whether he uses them to, to punish his people or he uses his people to come against them, I can't just shift this and say, okay, now we're talking about an Assyrian king. I think we stay in the line. We stay in the metaphor of the fiery serpent Moses lifts up in the wilderness. And Jesus says that's what he is when he is lifted up on the cross. He is just like that, offering salvation to those who turn to him. But what does he also offer? When he returns, it is judgment for those who are his enemies, just like the fiery serpents on the ground. So I think we are clearly seeing here this progression. God, through Isaiah, talking to the Philistines for the benefit of Judah. Philistines, do not rejoice that Ahaz is dead. David dominated you forever, but just because Ahaz is dead does not mean that you are in the free. Do not rejoice because Ahaz's son, he will have authority over you. He will beat you in victory. And then the, his fruit, what is the fruit of Hezekiah? The fruit is where the Davidic line is where promised to come that the Messiah would come and sit on David's throne. The Messiah would come and be the one who would sit on David's throne for eternity. So the fi flying fiery serpent in this passage, even though it seems like it shouldn't be, I think has to be the Messiah. And what's being held out to the Philistines is this is what's going to happen to you and what's unwritten is if you don't repent because that's always what happens when Jesus is given, is it not? We give Jesus as the way to life. And if you reject Jesus as the way to life, where do you, what do you get? You get death. You get eternal punishment. And the same offer in every picture of the Messiah in the Old Testament is there. So for though your adversary is broken, the lineage is great, is the message to Philistia. Well, now with the hard part over. And... This, this, this great lineage, your adversary, that leads to Messiah will destroy you, leaving not even a remnant while securely saving your adversary. Look at verse 30. And the firstborn of the poor will graze, and the needy lie down in safety. Now, there's some who would say that's talking about people who are in Philistia, who, who are cared for by God. And it could be, but this is the language that Isaiah has used all the time about the remnant and how they will be protected and fed. This reminds us, doesn't it? Doesn't it remind us of that famous psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear no evil. For you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. So verse 30 is the, the constant back and forth between judgment and hope. This is the hope for God's people, the firstborn. The firstborn, that's what God calls Israel, isn't it? In Exodus 4.24, he said, he talks to, to, the, to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And he says, they're my firstborn. 
So here we have even the firstborn, the, the firstborn of those people are safe in the hands of God. And the firstborn of the poor will graze. In other words, they will be fed. They will be, they will be satisfied. And the needy lie down in safety. Those who are in need. And r- the root of this word has its idea of, of willingness. That's the root of the word, has idea of willingness. So it, ter- it became a word to mean you're either willing to submit or you're willing to rebel. And that's the picture that's brought here. Those who are the needy, they turn to the Lord. They turn to the fiery serpent to have their needs met. And God will meet their needs. It's a promise to them. But, see the adversity in the third line of verse 30? But I will kill your root with famine and your remnant it will slay. There's the Philistines. Not in the first two phrases. Here are the Philistines. And God says, I have a root, and you have a root, and my root is stronger than your root, for I will kill your root with famine, and your remnant, it, that is famine, will slay. So this is not going to go well for you, Philistines, but with God, there's always the opportunity to repent, is there not? There's always the opportunity to repent. Well, the second command, set of commands we see Do not rejoice, O Philistia, but also wail in fear, O Philistia. Look at verse 31. Wail, O gates, and cry out, O city. Melt with fear, O Philistia, all of you. That wonderful phrase again to to mark out historically who Philistia, the five cities, the, the Pentopolis of Gaza and Ashkelon and Ashdod and Ekron and Gath. And so look at the progression. There's a wailing, there's a crying out, there's a melting. There's a gate, a city, and then fear driving it all. So the gate, that that is the picture of security for a city, right? That's where the elders would sit. That's where it was fortified the most. The leaders of that city would control who went in and went out. So that gate, if that gate is going to fall, what falls next? All the people behind the gate. All the city then will fall. If the gate is overtaken, the city will fall as well. And when that happens, everyone melts in fear. They, they melt away in fear. And this idea of melting, has, it has the picture of somebody who is completely demoralized and humiliated and sitting in a corner with no power and no strength to do anything except watch the enemy overtake the gates. There's a certainty about this because of the sin of the Philistines. A certainty that God is going to cause this to happen. But you are not safe because your enemy is strong. Look at verse 31. We see the remnant in verse 30 and then lack of a remnant, total destruction for the Philistines. And then we see in verse 31 this this. You're not safe. Your gate is not safe. Your city's not safe. Why? For, the little word for connects us and tells us, smoke comes out of the north and there is no straggler in his ranks. So you can just picture this, right? You picture just an army coming through dusty soil and all the dust raising up. Um, uh, You picture it in the old westerns with the horses coming. You picture it in the army, uh, in the the war movies when, when there's been no rain. You don't see it when there's mud, but if there's been no rain, what do you see? When the army comes, the dust is rising, and that's the picture here. And this little phrase, 
days and there is no straggler in his ranks. No one is out of place. There is no rebellion in this army. There's, they're not missing people. There's nobody left on the side of the road with bad feet, which happened all the time to armies. This is a full army, full strength, and they're coming for you. So your gates are not safe. Therefore, your city's not safe, and you will do, be demoralized in your total and complete destruction. Well, that's a sad picture for Philistia. And remember, Judah is receiving the oracle about Philistia. They're being reminded, don't trust in the Philistines. Even when they send an envoy to you, don't trust in the Philistines. Look at the next verse. How should Judah respond to Philistia? They should say, Yahweh is present and reigning, and in him his people find refuge. What will one answer the messengers of a nation? Here's what I think this is, this is leading us to. It's leading us to understand that upon the death of the king, oftentimes other nations would send um, envoys to that nation. And they would send them bearing gifts, mourning with them, identifying in their pain of losing the nation. But they're also often going to spy on them to figure out how weak they are. How's the transition of power going? We have an example of this in 2 Samuel chapter 10, just two verses. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David, this is under David's rule, said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, and his, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father, and David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. So David is doing this in a righteous way. The father who just died treated David faithfully, so he's going to treat his son faithfully. He wants to send an envoy to let him know that. But here's how the princes of the other of the Ammonites responded. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard. That was a big thing for them, right? Picture Robert, half a beard. It's a demoralizing thing for people in, the, in ancient times. So he took them and he shaved off, uh, um, sent to meet them and, and saved off. Let me find my place here again. Took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. Sent them back demoralized. That's what I think is happening here. Not maybe the sending back demoralized, but them sending an envoy on the death of a king for the appointment of the next king, maybe to see how they're doing, maybe to say, hey, now that you're changing kings, maybe you ought to partner up with us against Assyria. I don't know what their message is, but they are coming and God says through Isaiah to Judah, here's how you respond to them. Look at your text in verse 32. The Lord has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. The Lord has found, Yahweh has founded Zion. This is, he's founded Zion, which is what? That's the place where God dwells. That's where the temple is. That's where God dwells. That's where all the people in chapter 2 are going to come. All the nations are pictured coming for the knowledge of Yahweh, for him to give them counsel of how they should live. This is an, an evangelistic kind of picture. Listen, you do what you want to do, but we're not trusting in you because Yahweh has founded Zion. 
where we live. He dwells with us. And in Zion, with God, in his presence, the afflicted of his people find refuge. And the afflicted of his people have already been talked about in verse 30. The firstborn of the poor will graze and the needy lie down in safety. So this is the message that should be given. We are not going to trust in you. We are going to trust in the Lord our God. Whatever it is that you are offering me. And this is the message for us. We have the picture of the Messiah being promised right in this passage. Now, I, I want to draw your attention to, to one more place. You don't have to turn there if you don't want. Psalm 87, because there's total destruction of the Philistines, and yet there are still those in there, I believe, who responded at some point to the flying fiery serpent, that, re, that responded to the word of God and the promises of Yahweh. Psalm 87 on the holy mount stands the city he founded. Yahweh loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Listen, amongst those who know me, this is God speaking, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. We're going to see oracles against these as well. The one was born there, they say. Now, no one is born in Israel except a Jew, right? And yet they're being spoken of as if they were born there because they have come to Yahweh. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself has established her. The Lord records as he registers the people this one was born there. This is the book of life being talked about here, that there are those from all these rogue and enemy nations who are against God who now come, and they come because of the Messiah being offered and promises being given by God. I know I'm running late. We're running late for a bunch of reasons, but I'm almost done. Is that cool? Is that fair? So how does this affect us? What do you say to the messengers that come in and try to overwhelm your knowledge of you? Listen, Yahweh dwells here now, right? Jesus is the temple, and the temple is being built brick by brick in us. Jesus resides in us. So we have the promises of Messiah. We are, as believers, seated at the right hand of the Father. We, with Christ, experiencing all the blessings that Christ has, not fully here on this earth, but they're promised to us, and we have our inheritance guaranteed in the future because we have trusted in the Messiah, the flying, fiery serpent of this text. We have placed our faith and trust in them because God, in Him because God has gathered us to Himself by changing our hearts and regenerating us. So we are the people who understand the Word of God. And when the Word of God speaks, you remember last week, we're constantly being reminded by the Word of God that no matter what we're seeing, right? We're, we're being reminded that the Word of God is reality. And yet the whole world and all of the devil's uh, agents come at us all the time to draw us away from that, saying things like, well, God didn't actually say that, did he? Is that really what God meant? And you say, well, I, I don't really feel like I'm ever tempted by Satan himself. Well, you may not be tempted by Satan himself, but you can be tempted by people who profess Christianity today. Can you not? All you got to do is just click on the Internet and click on the wrong teacher, and you'll find somebody who's teaching garbage, and you could even know their name. They could be famous, and you could be led right down the wrong road because you don't have discernment because you haven't reminded yourself of what the Word of God has said, you're constantly looking to others to tell you who God is instead of looking to the Word of God Himself. It also is going to hit us at all times. We live in a, in a world that says it's all about me, right? 
Everybody tells us it's all about me. We have to have me time. If I'm stepping on toes, I'm sorry. We have to have me time, right? Time that is only mine. We have to be able to guard against that. I have to be able to have my platform on the internet. I want people, I want to influence other people on the internet. I don't know how much you want to be an influencer today, but they're dying like crazy for the stupid things they're doing. Do you know that? Just another one died. First uh, skydiving, died again. A beautiful young woman who's trying to be an influencer because if you're an influencer, you make a bunch of money, right? She dies because she's trying to gather a platform where she earns fame and fortune. That's what the world tells us we need to do, and we're caught up in it all over the place. You may not be an influencer but you may be someone who's constantly trying to give, get the, uh, the pleasure and pleasing affirmations of other people. You may be people who spend all your time trying to figure out how you satisfy your own desires instead of wondering what God would have for you and being obedient to what he has for you to do and serving other people instead of having me time. Because me time is not godly when it's all about you and your needs instead of God and what he would have for you to do. I'm not talking bad about rest. I'm not talking bad about vacations. I'm not talking bad about taking breaks and all that. I'm not. What I'm saying is when that marks you, I need me time. We had some yesterday. Yeah, but today is a different day. I need me time. Well, what was all the morning then? You didn't start work until noon. Well, but that's, uh, then I did work a few hours. Now I need me time. These things are tempting for us And I'm painting a pretty broad picture here, but I'm trusting the Spirit to be speaking into your life where the cacophony of noise of the world comes in. It constantly tries to bring us away from the Word of God. And our message is we serve God. We listen to His voice. We listen to His commands for us. It is our desire to please Him, not to please ourselves. I go where He says to go, not where you say to go. I put my money in these places because He says that, not in those places because you say that. That's the message for us today. Why? Because Christ died, and He rose again, and He's given us life, and He's given it more abundantly in this life, even as we wait on the perfection of the next life. So as one person who used to go to this church many years ago said, if we're going to spend eternity in happy, sinless bliss and in in unity with everyone and worshiping God instead of ourselves, should we start practicing now? Because that's the word for us. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We pray, Lord, that even as we see such a beautiful picture of your son, the Messiah, lifted up, lifted up on a cross to die so that we might have life. I pray that that would motivate us, Father, that we remembered in, in the Lord's Supper that he, he died. He offered his body and shed his blood so that we might have life. That we remember, Father, that he didn't stay in the grave, but he was resurrected as the first fruits, and he has called us to live on his mission. And because he is the first fruits, our resurrection is secure. So let us be found on the mission of Christ as he sends us out with the gospel, as he sends us out to make his name glorious and not our own. For you have given us many benefits in this world. You have given us many opportunities, Lord, to serve you in the midst of a world that is full of blessings for us, blessings in many ways like no no nation and no society has ever had. But at the end, if we receive the blessings and seek the blessings and desire the wealth and the riches and the fame more than Christ, 
then we don't have Christ. For in essence, all we have is Christ. And all we need is Christ. So help us to be those who receive your blessings with joy, are faithful to your mission, are constantly bringing the words of Christ into our own life, in our family's life, in our witness, in our gospel preaching. Make us be those, Father, who you have called us to be for your glory. And it will be for our benefit as we have our eyes fixed on the new heaven and new earth. So we are grateful for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.